Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath. I'm Monish Rath here at Keller and Heckman, and uh, welcome to the OSHA 3030. We we are probably on our 51st episode of the OSHA 3030, and we've been doing this for just over five years. Today's topic. Uh, a settlement agreement that a company entered into with OSHA in an enforcement action. The settlement agreement in particular relates to the bloodborne pathogen standard. Uh, if you are on the website getting these slides, don't forget to get the audio by conference call by regular telephone line. As I said before, I'm Monish Rath with Keller and Heckman here in Washington, D.C. And I'm very fortunate because I'm joined today by my colleague, David Sarvati. David is a person who uh, is one of the deans of OSHA law anywhere in the country, has been practicing for a number of decades. Uh, David and I have handled enforcement actions on behalf of employers, successfully uh, getting fair results for employers in OSHA enforcement actions around the country in state plan states and in federal, state, uh, federal OSHA states. Uh, as well as uh, keeping uh, the industry voice uh, at the forefront in the rulemaking process. David Sarvati, thank you very much for joining the OSHA 3030 today, and welcome. Thank you, Manish. Uh, you almost make me blush. Well, uh, it's been a while since you've been with us, so it may be that we needed a full introduction again. So thank you for coming back. Uh, well, with that said, let's get in, David, to what we're going to talk about today. Uh, let me, let me first say, as I said before, we've done about 50 of these, and the prior OSHA 3030s, not only the slides, but the audio and slides are together uh, found on a library at our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. And so at that website, you can find all, or almost all of the 50 prior OSHA 3030s. Some great topics, many of them are still very relevant to the in-house counsel and the safety and health professionals at corporations around the country should they need a primer on any developing areas of, of OSHA law. So the only thing we ask, this, this program has always since its inception been uh, complimentary to our clients and to friends of the firm, and the only thing we ask by way of registration fee is when you get this email inviting you to register for the next OSHA 3030, make sure you forward it on to at least three colleagues in-house counsel or safety and health professionals at your organization or other organizations down the road. If you've already done that for us, thank you. We're really grateful. It's the lifeblood uh, and the future of the OSHA 3030. But if you've already done so, please find three more people that you can send this on to and keep doing that uh, so that we can get uh, a robust community that keeps the program going in years to come. So thank you for all of your efforts for doing that. With that said, David, why don't we get into what we're going to talk about today. As I mentioned, there was a corporation that entered into a settlement agreement that we think is uh, of great interest to the regulated community, not only as to the bloodborne pathogen standard, but uh, generally speaking on enforcement of uh, a number of issues that apply to other standards as well. Uh, we're going to start with an overview of that standard, the bloodborne pathogen standard. Then we're going to talk about how it applies to the waste and recycling operations uh, industries. And we're going to get into the facts of that recent settlement agreement and the terms of, of the settlement agreement, which I think happen to be extremely interesting as well for maybe all employers, regardless of industry. And, and finally, David, as you know, we always try and wrap up with a practical discussion of what 
employers should do in light of this development. Yeah, Manish, I think that maybe the, one of the things we could have done a little bit better is focus the title of this on what is significant about this case, and that has to do with this notion that uh, OSHA can change its enforcement posture, um, you know, pretty much at, at its own discretion. And in this case, there's a, an interpretation we're going to talk about uh, in the course of the discussion that is important for us in regard to um, the implications of this particular case. So, Manish? Yeah, I think that's right. So with that said, uh, let's go ahead and get into it. Let's start with the bloodborne pathogen standard. And I, and I think you're right, David. The, um, the elements of this settlement agreement are extremely universally applicable. But let's start bringing everyone up to speed on the bloodborne pathogen standard. It comes in at section 1910.1030. And, uh, and to start off with, in many ways, it has some of the features that appear in a lot of other of the health side standards. Uh, it starts off with requiring employers to engage in an exposure determination. I would call this a hazard assessment in a generic sense, and here it refers specifically to exposure determination. And also in that same subsection, it calls for employers to develop an exposure control plan. And the scope of the standard to start off with uh, applies to all employers and employees who have occupational exposure to blood or other uh, potentially infectious materials, OPIMs. And so employers who, who believe that the scope applies to them have to engage in an exposure determination. And uh, that involves a facility by facility uh, particularized determination. And it also has to be particularized to each job and within each job, the tasks that are being performed. And then uh, the employer has to develop a written exposure control plan. And then I think, I think a lot of the members of the OSHA 3030 community will recognize a lot of the other features of the standard. Uh, it starts off with engineering and work practice controls, and then personal protective equipment in a hierarchy. Uh, it goes through housekeeping. Uh, and then there's a subsection that applies to laboratories. Uh, and then there's a vaccination uh, requirement uh, for HEP-B, uh, and then finally, uh, the hazard communication training and record-keeping provisions. So, so those, that's the basic architecture of the standard. But remember, at the very beginning of this description, we talked about uh, a discussion of the scope of the standard as it applies to all employers or employees who have occupational exposure to blood or other potentially infectious materials. So let's talk about that. When we talk about who has occupational exposure to blood or other potentially infectious materials, the standard uh, applies to all employers and employees where the exposure is not actual exposure alone, but also reasonably anticipated exposure to uh, either blood or potentially infectious materials. And that includes uh, the fluids of the skin uh, or, or tissue of the skin, eye, mucous membrane, parenteral uh, contact, uh, uh, and it also applies to any employee who is either on a volunteer or required basis as an employee of the company engaged in first aid. Yeah, I, uh, um, I, it does apply to employees whose job duty includes first aid. It doesn't, um, and this, this is an important distinction and one that sometimes trips people up, and you'll see in the slide there, it says, if a person renders first aid as a collateral duty, that is, they're assigned on a shift, 
uh, to respond and provide first aid to other employees who may be injured on the job that they're covered by the term occupational exposure. It does not include employees who have received first aid training but whose job description does not include the requirement to render first aid. This is important from another perspective, Monish. There's a, another standard that requires employers to provide emergency medical treatment as necessary when they are not in, quote, near proximity, unquote, to um, a medical facility. It used to be that uh, that meant, uh, you know, 20 minutes uh, in terms of response time to get uh, first responders there. That has changed over the years. In most situations, uh, even some places where a five or a seven minute response time um, occurs or, or is expected may not qualify. And you might then have the obligation to have people assigned with the duty of providing uh, first aid and uh, emergency medical treatment on site. So that's something people should keep in mind in going back and uh, reviewing their, their uh, plan and their occupational exposure determination and, and bear in mind this interplay between those two standards. Monish? Yeah, that's a great point, David. Thank you. And, and you know, we covered this uh, a couple of OSHA 3030s ago in a case where the question was raised about the housekeeping provisions. Let's suppose there's an industrial accident and a first aid responder responds. Uh, pretty clearly, that person has to have underwent, uh, undergone bloodborne pathogen training. Uh, but in addition, it raises the question about whether or not housekeeping is trained under bloodborne pathogens if they're the ones responsible for the cleanup yeah. of think, any spilled blood, for example. Yeah, Manish, that, that determination depends on whether what type of operation is involved. In a, in a medical facility, obviously, you're going to have that potential. In an, in an office setting, the chances of having somebody in a janitorial status having to clean up uh, blood or other materials is not going to be a likely occurrence. And so somewhere between those two extremes, there's going to be a line drawn that says if you have uh, potential for serious injury in your facility, it's a, a, uh, an unusually dangerous type of activity or job where uh, physical injury resulting in uh, blood or other body fluids being released, uh, OSHA will, will and can take the position that that uh, circumstance would require an employer to have uh, first aid capable uh, employees on site to render immediate first aid, whereas uh, an employer um, like uh, an office setting where the chances of having uh, uh, an injury occur that would require first aid are, are relatively low might not have that obligation to include that in their evaluation. One of the reasons this is an interesting question for employers to engage in with a lot of uh, deliberation is that the, uh, the initial requirement for exposure determination requires that the employer determine whether or not the employer or employees have, quote, occupational exposure. And the definition of occupational exposure in the standard is any exposure, it means reasonably anticipated skin, eye, mucus, membrane, or parenteral contact with blood or other infectious, uh, potentially infectious materials. And that, that phrase, reasonably anticipated, does not appear in 
all other OSHA standards. For example, in the PPE standard, you don't see the reasonably anticipated. Right. And so it really comes down to the employer to be careful to uh, make sure they can defend their determinations as being reasonable and yeah. in good faith. Yeah, I think that's right, Monish. And the, the, maybe the place to look for that, there's, uh, there are cases out there that talk about uh, when an employee is exposed to a hazard. And uh, the, the key concepts there are that there has to be an opportunity for the employee to be in the zone of danger uh, of, to the hazard that's involved. And um, it exempts those situations where it's just not reasonably, uh, the potential for exposure is not reasonable to describe. And uh, the cases in the courts have said in those circumstances where OSHA's uh, relying on uh, the fact that it is not impossible to be exposed to the hazard, that that then brings a, um, an employer within the scope of the standard. That's not the case. The courts have rejected that broad, over-inclusive uh, I- interpretation. But perhaps not OSHA. Uh, and that's what brings that's us around, correct. To, <laughs> brings us around to this case. Where we are. <laughs> yeah. uh, so let's talk about this case. I think that when you apply the, the bloodborne pathogen standards to the waste and recycling industry, uh, there are a couple of very interesting interpretation letters where industry members have sought some guidance from the agency. And in 1993, the agency issued a letter of interpretation saying, look, when you look at recycling, let's say bottles and cans, for example, and the potential that needles might be in there, uh, what happens, the employer asked, if uh, you have line workers who are trained to spot needles and then stop the line and get a supervisor who is trained under the uh, bloodborne pathogen standard, but the line sorter is not. He's trained to spot it and stop the machine, but not to interact uh, with that needle. Uh, the agency said, look, as long as the supervisor is the only one who has exposure and is covered under the bloodborne pathogen standard, both with respect to training and with respect to vaccinations, that seems to be an appropriate methodology. Again, 10 years later, in 2003, OSHA again in a letter of interpretation said, look, if there is uh, a supervisor who's summoned, if the process is that a supervisor summoned to uh, the line whenever a potentially contaminated sharp is found, and because of his bloodborne pathogen training and vaccination handles the sharp, that would be a suitable approach. Uh, there, there is a problem in this particular case, however, when, uh, so let's talk about this particular case where, where OSHA issued a citation. Where Tamra was the subject of an inspection and uh, was issued citations, during the course of the investigation, OSHA discovered that there was a history of a number of needle sticks by sorters. So from that they gathered that although the training for the line sorter was to spot the needle, stop the line, and call in somebody at the supervisory level who is trained on how to handle it. Uh, nevertheless, they were, they were getting accidentally stuck. And because of that history of prior needle sticks, OSHA issued a citation, uh, a series of citations, at two facilities for Tamara. Uh, so, so Tamara entered into an agreement with OSHA, and they agreed to make this settlement effective across the whole corporation, what we'd call a corporate-wide settlement agreement. These corporate-wide settlement agreements are, I think, special creatures of the law because the implications of a corporate-wide settlement agreement are much more far-reaching 
than the establishment agreement. Uh, and, and they do have, I think, a bigger implication for the industry as well. So one of the things that, that you see in the settlement agreement is where OSHA had alleged violations of the blood blown pathogen standard, and in particular uh, relating to the exposure determination, uh, the employer ultimately agreed that that constituted a failure of the uh, company to comply with the standard. They, they essentially agreed to the allegation by OSHA that the employees who uh, do the manual sorting have occupational exposure to blood or potentially infectious materials, and that's based on the history of prior needle sticks, and they have the potential to come in contact with blood or potentially infectious materials, and that the exposure determination that said to the contrary either wasn't done properly or uh, maybe it was reasonable at the time but needed to be revised in light of the history of needle sticks. David, I will say one thing. We, there are obviously, as is always the case with enforcement actions and settlement agreements, a lot of the facts that aren't visible to us, the rest of the regulated community. There, there is that question, and I, I would say if the information we've been able to obtain about the settlement and, in terms of the underlying facts suggests that this wasn't a frequent occurrence. This was something that occurred on occasion. They'd had a couple of incidents over a period of time. But one of the fallacies that is evident in this, the allegations from OSHA is that OSHA is taking the position that the prior history meant that the plan that the company had in place was insufficient. I don't think that's exactly logical. It's, it's a res ispa, ipsa loquitur, the, the thing speaks for itself kind of uh, analysis. And that is not what we have in most situations. People typically set up their programs and think they've done the right thing, and then they find out when OSHA comes and does an inspection that it's not adequate. Um, I don't think that's the way it should work. Unfortunately, that's the way it does in many cases. And this is a good example where the employer felt like that they, they were, had complied with the standard based on the interpretation. And when OSHA shows up and says, oh, you had this history, you therefore you didn't comply with the standard, that's kind of putting the cart before the horse. So um, it's a reminder to people, uh, you, you need to look at these standards and look at the letters of interpretation and bear in mind that OSHA is going to come to this kind of an inspection with a preset a set of preconceived notions about an employer should be within the scope of the standard and should have met, complied with it in its entirety, even though there seems to be sort of an exception that would take the employer out of that circumstance. Yeah, it's a difficult position for an employer because I know the exposure determination portion of the standard does not have a frequency established for renewing its determinations. Uh, on the other hand, the exposure control plan has to be reviewed annually, and an argument could be made, at least under that subsection, that the history of needle sticks could have prompted uh, a reasonable employer to revise their original uh, hazard determination or exposure determination. Mon so, so I think that may have been the allegation. Yeah, you you sound exactly like an OSHA lawyer in that circumstance. <laughs> so. But yeah, I think Thank that's you, right. Thank you, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I think the thing to keep in mind, though, is when you have these kind of annual reviews um, it, where it, the language of the standard says, you know, review your exposure control plan, maybe you really ought to take a closer look at the whole program that you've got in place, including these initial determinations. Yeah, I think that's the problem. Uh, so, 
so now OSHA enters into a settlement agreement with Tamra, and in the agreement, Tamra agrees to revise its exposure control plan to recommit itself to annual training uh, to provide the line sorters with puncture-resistant gloves. Uh, I, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of facts that are not uh, transparent to the public. We, of course, have access to, to sources that a lot of people don't, and we, we do uh, we are of the understanding that at Tomro the employees did have puncture-resistant gloves, although OSHA may have challenged the adequacy of that protection. Uh, certainly Tomro thought that the original version of assigned uh, gloves was puncture-resistant. That would have been sufficient for me, and I'll, we'll get into more of that later, but uh, the, the employer also agreed to offer vaccination uh, engineering controls to permit the agency to engage in monitoring, which I think is a pretty big ask. Yeah, I think the the key factor here uh, in the settlement agreement, you know, they're basically saying we're going to comply with the standard on a more extensive basis, but then OSHA has the ability to step in, monitor what's going on, and there's also this internal corporate monitoring assignment that they created where somebody within the company will be the point of contact for OSHA to follow, for follow-up. Um, that strikes me as... Uh, having OSHA involved in the management of the company, I really think that's outside of um, the scope of what OSHA has been authorized by Congress to do. And I would expect uh, the current administration not to be pursuing those kinds of provisions in these settlement agreements going forward. Certainly an abatement certification and the power to enforce failure to abate suffices, and so this does seem superfluous. So I agree. Going on, when we talk about settlement agreements, uh, the settlement agreement with Tamra, they also uh, required uh, that that uh, employees be covered in the bloodborne pathogen standard without regard to whether or not the employee was himself or herself responsible for uh, disposal of the needle. In other words, if they just found the needle and didn't do anything else, the parties now agree that they would nevertheless be covered under the standard. Uh, and I think that there's probably some sense to that, given the history of needle sticks, that it's possible to get stuck before you can spot the, the sharp. Uh, and then, uh, then of course, the employer protections to prevent exposure incidents in the first place, uh, the details of which I think that they'll probably have. Monish, the key language into. on this slide is the second bullet up there, the broad language suggesting OSHA enforcement. I don't think anybody who read the interpretation letter would have thought that the fact that you're, only, you're sorting recyclable bottles and cans automatically brought you within the scope of the standard, but it appears that's the position that OSHA's taken right now. So uh, going forward, we're going to really need to focus on that. So in light of uh, this development, let's talk about what we think employers should do. Well, I think the first is when employers are engaged in activities or at establishments, that uh, have a potential for exposure to blood or other potentially infectious materials, they need to engage in a written uh, exposure determination. Well, with that said, uh, I think it's also safe to say that even though that is a, at least nominally on the face of the standard, an initial determination, because the exposure control plan is something that the standard requires annual review and revision of, uh, it's probably inclusive of the kinds of analyses that take place under the initial determination as yeah. well. I think that's right, Monish. But the other thing I would I would do if I were uh, running one of these programs now, 
let's assume that you're going through this exercise and you've decided that there's a certain category of employees that are not covered by the standard. That is, they don't reasonably have, have reasonably anticipated exposure. I would document the basis for that. The things that do, will not occur or are not right. likely to occur that otherwise could bring them within the scope of the standard. And what this uh, uh, citation and settlement agreement suggests, uh, especially in that last item about the person who's actually doing the sorting, if you're going to negate the inference that a person sorting bottles and cans might be exposed to needle sticks, you've got to address that particular question where it's, uh, I think, I, su I suppose, uh, based on our understanding of the facts in this case, it's well recognized in the industry, in the recycling industry, that bottles and cans can sometimes contain needles that have been used for illicit drug use. And so if you're going to go down that path, you've got to figure out how are you going to avoid the inference that a person sorting bottles and cans presumptively is going to be exposed to BBPs because of the needles. Um, there may be other examples like that. And right. one of the things that you need to do, it seems to be, Monish, with your uh, annual review is do some pie-in-the-sky word association. What happens if? What are the circumstances when? Those kinds of questions, it seems to me, can lead you to the discussions and then the justification for inclusion or exclusion of a particular job or category of jobs from the standard. That's a much better defensible posture, and it shifts the burden back to OSHA to require them to demonstrate that you knew or should have known otherwise, that somehow your analysis was faulty. And uh, I think that's a much stronger position legally for us to be in if we have to defend one of these cases. I think that's just absolutely right. And in fact, that's a good uh, jumping off point to take this one bloodborne pathogen standard enforcement action and uh, expand it to some general concepts that I think apply to a whole larger cohort of employers. For one thing, the process of doing a job hazard analysis is one that applies to many of the health standards, including PPE, and it's the first step for a lot of standards. So when you engage in that activity for any number of standards and, P and the personal protective equipment standard, uh, I think it's safe to say, David, that a lot of employers will document the reasons for requiring certain measures for certain tasks, but they, they ought to also document why it's not necessary in other tasks. Uh, and part of the reason is just real practical. The person who's handling this analysis may not be the person who's dealing with the enforcement action with the uh, inspection officer. Yeah, I, I think that's right, Monish, but I th also think that one of the kind of the default situations a lot of safety and health people take when they do a job hazard analysis or job task analysis is that they are covered unless they can demonstrate otherwise. Um, I, I don't know that that's necessarily the best way to approach it. I think m we ought to be more uh, thoughtful about including people in the scope of various standards by looking not only at the, the factual circumstances of how things are being done or how products are being used, but also look at the duration and the frequency of exposure. Those two factors, it seems to me, are equally important when we're talking about um, compliance with these standards. If, for example, we're talking about somebody whose uh, uh, potential exposure to bloodborne pathogens occurs less than once a month over a course of a year, 
it seems to me there's an argument that they're not occupationally exposed, just like with some of the other standards, the, and particularly health standards, where OSHA says if the exposure occurs on a frequency basis of less than 30 days a year, then you're not covered by certain provisions of the standard. Uh, so I think we need to refine our assessments in that way and be more discriminatory between the different types of activities and jobs that we're going to either include or exclude. Because remember, everything that we do to include increases the cost associated with it and puts burden on the employees who have to comply with whatever the provisions are that apply to that particular circumstance. So, Well, that's right. And when you overkill your uh, efforts on one standard, you may be uh, depriving employees of safety and health measures and other standards because of the finite attention and resources you can apply. But I will say, David, you're 100% right that the mere fact that something has happened once doesn't make it reasonably anticipated uh, that, it'll, that it's something that can be reasonably anticipated. On the other hand, as you have talked about many, many times at the uh, OSHA boot camp, which sired the OSHA 3030, uh, <laughs> that there's a sliding scale on the severity of the outcome. And when you talk about HIV or hepatitis, uh, BCD, whatever, then you, you are looking at a, a highly severe outcome against a low probability, perhaps. Yes. But, but uh, that, that has to be measured in there as well. I, that has to be a factor that you take into account when right. you're discussing it. And I want to mention one other thing, Monish, about this business of being careful not to expand the scope of the coverage too much. One of the, thing, one of the things in my experience that employees uh, – uh, recognize is when you impose an obligation on them that they do not understand the rationale for its application, it becomes much more difficult to assure that they're going to comply. So either you better be able to explain why you're inc including them or recognize the fact that maybe it's not such a significant uh, problem from their perspective either uh, that perhaps you ought to reevaluate the situation. Some of the takeaway items from the settlement agreement itself, I'm, I'm obviously troubled by the idea that when you look at the bloodborne pathogen standard or many other health standards, there is a process by which the employer has to go through a hazard determination, and that is what we would call a, uh, essentially a performance standard. Correct. And when OSHA second guesses your determinations about hazards, they have transformed, either deliberately or accidentally, transformed a performance standard into a specification standard. But the specification itself is a bit of a game of peekaboo. You've got to guess whether they're going to like your determination after the fact or not. Not only that, it's a sliding scale that's continually moving. Right. Maybe moving the goalposts is a better analogy. Right. <laughs> and the other concern I have is, you know, it's really critical for employers, particularly when debating whether or not to get into corporate-wide settlement agreements, but in all settlement agreements, to have OSHA counsel with them. I personally would not have allowed the factual allegations to have become express admissions in the form of a settlement agreement without serious consideration. And I think there may be some good reasons for doing so, but it would be uh, maybe a last resort where uh, it, it is not essential to the purpose of the settlement agreement, which is how to achieve better right. safety programs yeah. going forward. Yeah, I, wouldn't want to, I don't want to criticize the, the attorneys who right. are involved in this because we don't have all of the facts, but you're right. We typically resist uh, assertions by OSHA that the, the facts are the facts and uh, generally try to provide in the settlement agreement a respond, what we call the respondent's statement or responses, and that provides some 
a way for the, the full picture to be reflected in the settlement agreement. So, Monisha, the last item I think that we need to mention here is the thing to keep in mind is that if you're looking at um, interpretations that OSHA has issued, be sure to pay close attention to the ambiguities in the interpretations and evaluate your compliance in considering the interpretation from the standpoint of what is the OSHA inspector going to say if they show up and there's already been an accident or an incident that they think would have been prevented by compliance with the standard. In those cases, I think in most situations, you're going to see an effort on the part of OSHA to, to write a citation and, again, move the goalposts. Well, and that brings me to my last point, which is, you know, when you look at the 20 years of interpretations, the one in 1993 and 2003, uh, I think that OSHA has to consider whether or not its new enforcement posture uh, requires it to go through some kind of rulemaking procedure. It did seem to me to be a reversal of the idea that the line worker did not need to undergo vaccinations yeah. and training. I think, I think Monish, it's they're probably not going to be forced to go through a rulemaking procedure, but as we saw in the last administration, those interpretations are all too easy to change. Uh, the real issue in those circumstances is going to be adequate notice to the employer community, which means you've got to pay attention to these things in the long run. Right. That's a great point, David. Well, that's the last word. We uh, hope that you continue to participate in the OSHA 3030, and in between, more OSHA news can be found on our Twitter account, at Rathmonish. Uh, this program is recorded and posted as a podcast in about one or two days after uh, the air date, which is today. So in a day or two, it should be up if you've been subscribing as a podcast or your coworkers who are unable to attend today. And then finally, our Keller and Heckman Workplace Safety and Health page on LinkedIn also has great information as well as the Monash Rath LinkedIn page. So please link in with us. Uh, we've talked about the OSHA 3030's parentage. I'd like to talk now about uh, the three sisters TOSCA 3030 is another program that we do here at Keller and Heckman, and that's uh, the next one will be at 1 p.m. on Wednesday, December 13th. The following Wednesday, we return for the OSHA 3030, 1 p.m. Wednesday, December 20th. And we have a new program, the FIFRA 3030, and that uh, we are looking forward to putting up another program maybe February of 2018. And please check in on our website or email Bedard at KH Law to find out more information about the FIFA 3030. So these three programs, if you are in uh, an industry or sector where any of these three pro uh, areas of law apply to you, I think that they are critical. And they're still the only programs I know of anywhere in the country that give you a 30-minute monthly update on developing law in OSHA, TSCA, and FIFRA law. So please sign up and spread the good word. With that said, thank you all for participating in today's OSHA 3030. We hope that you continue to participate in future sessions. David Servati, thank you very much thank for, you, for joining us. And uh, until we see you next month, stay safe. Thank you. Please stand by.